Imagine living in a time where six men kill themselves every day. And if we thought that's gonna happen in a hundred years, it sounds pretty gross, but it's actually now. Uh, you know, originally fake news starts as a critique of news that's considered to be inaccurate. It's become a term that's used now to dismiss any news that you don't like. And around one in seven young Australians uh, has a mental health condition. They are our most unwell generation that we've had. People don't accept the climate science. So if I think about how we're going to save the world, art enables us to move in that direction. Today we are back with tips and strategies from the experts about how to make social media work for you. We'll also find out how parents can help teens and young people manage the potentially negative impacts of social media and where to find help. Joining us now is Brady Robards. So my name's Brady Robards. I'm a senior lecturer in sociology and I study how young people use the internet. Dr. Brady Robards, welcome in this very unusual time to the podcast. Thanks, Susan. Great to chat. Do you know of any things that social media platforms have done to try to, apart from uh, removing likes, is, are there any other examples of things like that where social media or dating apps, any of those platforms have done things to try to make things better for people, nicer, improve mental health, or is it mm. all just money, money, money? <laughs> well, I think it's a... I think sometimes the latter, the money, money, money thing, is served by them appearing to do. Uh-huh. What would we call that? Kind washing? Kind washing? <laughs> kind washing, yeah. So, some examples that come to mind for me um, Asha Flynn, who's a colleague of mine in social sciences as well, often talks about um, some work that she's been doing with Facebook where there's um, this, they, they, did, they did this thing, it was around people posting racist stuff essentially. So, it was like, this algorithm that detects in a status update or a comment or something where it actually says to you, hey, um, some people might interpret what you're saying as in really negative terms. <laughs> Would you like to rephrase it? Um, so there's some kind of like algorithmic detection of sentiment essentially or the use of certain words yeah. or language. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but she said some, it, it, it did, did make an impact. Like, Something like three quarters of people, um, or maybe it was a half, changed what they were actually saying. Mm. Some of them changed it to something that was also offensive. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they doubled some down. Of them didn't, they doubled down, or they thought, "Oh, this is a better way to say this," but the algorithm was like, "No, still that's, uh, that's <laughs> You're okay. using the N word. Um, that's not going to change it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Things like this. Um, so there's things like, but I, that's not. That was a fairly controlled release. I think. I don't think that mainstream at the moment um the other example that i can think of is um grinder which is like a dating app for a dating hookup app mostly for gay men but it's sort of pivoted more towards being a bit more inclusive now um but it had a campaign because there's a lot of on dating hookup apps there's a lot of racist stuff that you see mm -hmm. um people basically saying in their profiles who they're interested in who they're not and using often very racist language and being very selective so they did a campaign called Kinder on Grinder, um, which was about people reflecting on the language that they were using in their profiles. And, and you know, there's always this discussion, oh, it's just a preference or whatever. Um, but they were basically saying, look, you know, think about how hurtful it would be to read something like not interested in Asians. When you're looking through profiles, 
and you see this, um, what is the impact that that actually has on people? And they had these short videos where they had people who were talking about their experiences of reading that kind of stuff. Um, so they launched this fairly comprehensive campaign, like it was built into the app. There was a kind of broader social media strategy where they were putting videos on YouTube and on different platforms. Um, I don't know whether there's any research looking at whether that has had a positive impact. Um, I think that though that these are examples of platforms trying to take more responsibility. Mm -hmm. I'm always, as a sociologist, kind of conscious that there is this commercial imperative that sits below or beneath these these kinds of campaigns. I do know some people that work for these platforms that are real um, campaigners, activists in these sorts of, sorts of spaces. And I think that the more we see platforms hire people specifically to address issues around ethics, around data collection, or, you know, um, these kinds of social justice campaigns um, that, that try and, as you say, make their platforms nicer, kinder, to people um, that are using them, then that's, that can only be better. I think if we saw them hire as many sociologists and anthropologists and, um, you know, people that do work with uh, marginalised people, um, social workers, if we saw them hire more people in those kinds of industries, in those kinds of fields, disciplines, as they do, you know, people to look after their bottom line, then that would be a really positive sign. We're probably not going to get there anytime soon. Um, but I think there are positive signs there around how platforms are taking more responsibility or are being forced to. I don't know what the reality is. but mm. From your research, is there anything individuals can do to help protect or improve their mental health when they're using social media? What would be your take-home tips? I think there's definitely something about managing time. Um, and you often hear people talk about having a break from Twitter when, when things are getting really dire. Um, there's also something really powerful, I think, about connecting in smaller group chats. Um, so rather than just being bombarded by the constant feed of things and bad news, um, being a bit more selective in how you manage the filters around certain posts. So, for example, um, Twitter can allow you to follow lists of people rather than um, follow everyone. And it can also allow you to um, remove retweets in, into your feed. So if you're the people you follow are often retweeting negative news. Um, but the, yeah, just having time out, using different platforms, like seeing how different subreddits on Reddit, for example, um, ban political discussion or ban talk about certain topics. Um, what is political discussion? That's a great another question. Um, but yeah, I think that, that those kind of filtering disc, filtering strategies are really important. My 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 always my concern with these sort of things is it places the responsibility on the individual. So it's like the individual has to take time out, or the individual has to develop a filtering strategy to manage their own mental health. And I am really wary of that, but I'm also not um, totally sold that platforms are going to solve this for us. I think you're right in, in thinking about what are individual strategies. As much as we don't want to put all the responsibility on individuals, there, there is some sense of control and, and learning strategies to manage that time um, that you're on social media for yourself. Brady, thank you so much. Thank you, Susan. It's been great to chat. Next up is Gemma Sharp. 
My name is Dr Gemma Sharp. I'm an NHMRC Early Career Fellow at the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre and I lead the Body Image Research Group there and I'm also a clinical psychologist. Imagine if we change nothing when it comes to social media and, and, and mental health, mm. particularly for young people. Mm. You know, let, let's cast our minds to 80 years into the future where we've done sure. nothing to try to improve this. Your bot never takes off. The social media companies do nothing. The government doesn't care. Mm-hmm. What would that future look like? 80 years into the future, I'm just thinking, so we're in like the year 2100. Yeah, pretend um, Instagram and TikTok <laughs> are still a thing. <laughs> wow, and I'm just like, gosh, I hope I'd be an old lady. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd be around. Um, gosh, that's, that feels like such a long time away, but I'm sure it will go really fast. So we're well, talking then, social well, then, media. You, you know what, you're at, things are changing so fast. What if it were just 30 years into the future? 30 years into the future where whatever social media evolves to become, no one has taken this issue of mental health and social media seriously enough. What's happening? Gosh, well, um, I think we have a very unwell population, I suppose, and all the young people who have come through this generation will potentially go on to be parents and, and grandparents and and potentially the generations behind them will be even more unwell. Um, I think our mental health workforce is not prepared for a very unwell population. Um, I think we'll be completely overrun, overwhelmed. Um, It might be that uh, people really can't engage in normal functional lives at all if they're so unwell. We might have so many people um, potentially not even to engage in normal lives, as I said. So I, I think it would be a, a very bleak future if we did absolutely nothing. So it really is very important that we do something about this now. I think so, because these these guys coming through are our next generation of parents and grandparents, and we know how influential parental figures are on the well-being of their their children. So if they're unwell, what hope do we really have for the next guys to come through? What can the average person at home do, young person or old person like me, who yeah. consumes social media and <laughs> is concerned about the impact on their mental health, maybe not just in the realm of, of body image, but of course that too. Sure. What do we yeah. do so it, so we don't become, like you predicted, the, a society that can't even function because we're so mentally mm-hmm. unwell? Mm. I think, um, well, obviously we do have resources at the moment to to help people. So if they are feeling unwell, go and seek support from someone early. Don't leave it till you're so unwell that you, you know, that you really can't maintain any kind of normal life. Uh, So seek support. I think it's also about, although social media is an excellent tool for connectedness, it's not our only tool. So I think we do need to limit our time on there. I don't think we should be on there 24-7. I think that's quite unhealthy. I think we should also be mindful of um, what we follow, who we connect with on social media. We can ask ourselves, does does, um, connecting with this content make me feel worse about myself or better? If it's consistently making you feel worse about it, do you really need it in your life? So you can be quite careful with what you actually engage with on social media. 
Mm, all right. So always having like that check in with with yourself to go. After I did Absolutely. that, how did I feel? Yeah, I think that's something we don't um, we don't do enough anyway in our normal lives. Is just um, monitoring our mood, our emotions, our feelings um, after experiences. And I know that certainly some people I work with, they will go, ah, I, I feel worse after this. And then they will purposely go looking for stuff that will make them feel even worse about themselves. Mm. So they go around in these, these spirals. And I'm like, ah, we could have nipped that in the bud much earlier. Mm-hmm. So we have to be pretty aware of ourselves then. You do. And I think young people aren't great at that. So I think it is about parents, caregivers, leading a good example of what it is to uh, be emotionally aware. And if they themselves aren't sure, that is where they can seek help from a mental health professional about how to become more aware of this. That's what we're that's what we're here for to support adults and young people. So I, I don't think um, suddenly when you become an adult, you you have all your shit together. Pardon my French. <laughs> I should probably rephrase that. Uh, <laughs> it, it certainly does not mean that we can all seek support at different stages of life. Um, but we do know that yes, parents and caregivers are very influential. So if you're doing the right thing by yourself being mentally aware of uh, your own reactions, et cetera, then your kids will pick up on that and, and be able to live, live positively as well. Do you think, given what you said, that sometimes young people aren't that good at being aware of themselves and, what, and what's good for them, no. do you think parents yeah. maybe need to intervene a bit and say, um, I'm going to say you can only have two hours of social media time a day, um, like it or sure. not? Is that the kind of thing that would be useful? Sure. I think that sounds absolutely reasonable. Um, I think uh, it, it is important for parents to, to set limits on these kinds of activities, just like you would any any other kind of activity, really. You want kids to have a certain amount of sleep, et cetera. Uh, why wouldn't you put some limitations on social media usage? For them and for ourselves, probably. I agree. And the um, I know Instagram put timers on how long people were actually spending on the platform. And I think people are quite unaware of how long they spend on these platforms each day. So I think that kind of tool by Instagram was a really good initiative. Yeah, it's confronting and I think we need that wake-up call. Dr Gemma Sharp, thank you so much for your time. This was really interesting and confronting. It, it really is. Thank you so much for having me. Nikki Jacobs has some evidence-based advice. So I'm Nikki Jacobs and I'm an Associate Professor at Monash University in the Faculty of Education. I'm also a clinical and counselling psychologist and I work with children, teenagers and adolescents. Nikki Jacobs, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Susan. What are some tips that we can do that um, teenagers won't roll their eyes out and go, you don't know anything and all my friends are online all night? (laughs) Talking more from a a psychologist's point of view rather than a definite research um, side of things, removing or banning the internet can be perceived by by teenagers or by children as a form of punishment. And and I'm very much against extremes in any form of um, behaviour. So, and I believe it's always problematic. 
It's about moderation of use. And, and as I said to you before, if you educate your child in a way that's not done in any other way than to gain a deeper understanding that they, they are appreciative of what you're saying and of what the research is out there, you've got a better chance of, of um, getting some balance going, some moderation going. And the ideal would be to sit around with your teenagers and establish clear, reasonable boundaries for limited internet, social media, gaming, whatever it is that the online uh, use uh, is, what, is what you're aiming to get. But it's really important to include your teenager in this decision-making process of how and when uh, they're going to use it and also the general household use of technology. If they are sitting there and you're deciding in a collaborative way and they're sort of setting the rules as well, they're taking some form of ownership of it and they're taking responsibility and therefore they're more vested in getting it to work than if you impose it on them in, in that sort of parental role. Important that you monitor the adherence to the rules and you have very clear consequences if they're not kept. And again, I would be sitting around with the teenagers and helping them develop what the consequences are that they think are fair and reasonable. So when they're imposed, if they should, if they should be, that they are more understanding and more accepting of them because they set the rules as well and they agreed on it. So it is really important that it's a collaborative process. And most important is that you role model as a parent the appropriate behaviour as well. This is what I was actually going to get in and say, because I think it's so easy as us as parents to go, now listen, you spend so long on that smartphone. I just, I can't even believe it as we barely lift our own eyes from our own Twitter or Instagram accounts um, to to tell them off about it. And and that's why I guess as we've been talking about this, I've been thinking, you know, obviously this, um, the, the impact of smartphones and social media on the developing adolescent brain teenage brain is is unknown and what we do seem to know so far doesn't look great but we could I wonder if we should be making similar um concerns about the impact on the my 40 year old brain as well like we're talking about teenagers reining it in but the rest of us are probably just as guilty of spending an obscene amount of time mindlessly scrolling what you've been saying about teenagers could we should we be transferring that to everyone absolutely absolutely i mean you you go out to restaurants or you go i mean when we could yeah those things and how many people are sitting at the table checking their phones not talking to each other not communicating it's really it's really a problem and and also the physiological side of it from actually sitting in front of a screen that most people do through their workplaces forget teenagers and they shift from the screen they go home and then when they're in their downtime, they're either watching TV, which is effectively a screen, or they're sitting on their phones in front of the TV or they go to bed. Last thing adults do at night, usually check their phones. It's not that kids can't have their phones during dinner time. Everybody puts their phone away during yeah. dinner. And they're, they're seeing that there's equity. It's important to do that. 
I think you're absolutely right. One thing I've been trying to implement uh, while we've all been in, in ISA, because like you said, um, you know, our kids are learning online all day now. That's just how they have to learn. And I have to yep. say at the end of the day, my son in particular, who's staring at an iPad for Zoom lessons all day, he honestly looks tranquilized at the end of the day. He looks like a zombie. And so what I've, I've started yeah. having really strong no screen times after school. So for this, from this period to this period, no one is to use any screens whatsoever. And that includes me and my husband. Um, because uh, like you said, if it's just me saying to the kids, put your phones down, it's very easy for me then just to quickly shoot off a few more emails. But we're all in the same boat and it's just as bad for me as for them. Do you think we're focusing why do you think we are having this focus on teenagers then? Is it we're trying to sort of offload our own unease about the way we as adults are using our smartphones and saying, oh, geez, these troublesome teens, they're really messed up um, as a way of avoiding our own complicity in the problem? Um, I don't know if it's that or if a lot of it has to do with the fact that we've had we've had both, like, We've grown up and we've gone out and we've learned to socialise by meeting someone and the first time we meet them is face-to-face and you get to know them and you're using the those interpersonal communication skills that, that we've developed over time. And so now we're sort of getting into the online world and, and we're also using emojis and abbreviations, et cetera, and text messaging. As you said originally, this generation, they don't know, and the ones that are coming up, the ones that are being born, they don't know a world without smartphones and devices. And that's what they're acculturated into. And the frightening thing is that, you know, going outside and kicking a football or going outside and playing and just just uh, informally is something that might have been so natural to how we grew up, whereas they're inside, they're not communicating with people other than through their devices. And I guess for parents, that's very frustrating because they haven't got a balance. And then as, as, as a parent, you know that um, that can, you, you've had both worlds, they're only having this and that they're missing out. And it's frustrating. Um, to see that in your child, not getting the benefit. So that's why I'm saying moderation. Smartphones, devices, iPads, it's here, it's not going away. So how do we merge it into their lives in a healthy, productive way? Nikki Jacobs, thank you so much. This was uh, very interesting and also a little bit terrifying, which is uh, not a bad thing for an interview. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode and our little series into social media and mental health. We'll be back with a brand new topic to delve into on the next episode of What Happens Next. So in the meantime, why don't you go and leave us a review? Remember, only the five-star button works on our podcast review for some reason. We don't know why. Take it up with iTunes. So anyway, that's the only button you can press. Look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. Bye.